Good morning, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started now. It's always fun to see people who are excited to be together, excited to reconnect and touch base. Let's say a brief word of prayer, and we'll jump into um, our lesson for this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to gather, to study your word, to be together. Please bless this time of teaching. I pray that you would equip us to think rightly about scripture. We know that you have revealed your truth to us in your word, that we might know it, that we might love you more, and that our lives would be shaped by it. So God, give us an open and alert mind this morning as we complete our study on bibliology. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, today is the final installment of our focus on bibliology, the doctrine of scripture, what the Bible says about itself. So we've covered, let's see, week one was Kerry Wilson. He talked about inspiration, inerrancy, and authority. Last week, Stephen Parkin discussed, does anybody remember what we talked about last week? A little pop quiz here. The Parkins will know. Do you know, Ruby? Clarity, that's right. Perspicuity is what she was going to say, but I encouraged her to use the word clarity instead. Uh, clarity and necessity and sufficiency is what Stephen talked about. And today is going to be part three, which is preservation, canonicity, and then the issue of transmission, which includes translations, things like that. So we'll talk about those today. And what we'd like to do is at the end of each of these sections um, in our doctrines class, We'd like to take a week where we respond to questions that you may have. So over the, the course of the last two lessons and today, you may have some specific questions. So we're inviting you to submit those this week. You can send those in via email to myself uh, if you have my email, or you can send it to info at rhlawrence.org. So those of you who may be watching uh, this video, maybe later today or tomorrow or sometime this week, feel free to send in those questions. And then we're going to compile some of those. And next week, uh, those of us who have been teaching on this topic We'll try to respond to those. So write down any questions you have today. Write down any questions you may have had the last several weeks, and we'll try to address those next week. And we'll probably do that at the end of each of these sections. So we'll take several weeks to talk about specific doctrines and then get some time for uh, questions and answers. So today, let's begin with the first of these topics we're going to cover, and that is the idea of preservation. Here's the definition of preservation. The preservation of Scripture is the acts of God whereby he has preserved through the centuries the written record of his special revelation for his people. That's what we mean when we refer to the doctrine of preservation. That God has preserved his word, his special revelation. So we know that general revelation is what we see out there, that the heavens declare the glory of God. Special revelation refers to scripture, and God has preserved that for his people. Several different passages that often get brought up when this doctrine is being discussed include Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119, 152. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. And the well-known passage from Isaiah 40. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We see New Testament language that is similar. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
So Old Testament and New Testament both indicate that God's word is preserved, that it is preserved forever, that it will not pass away, and that it will be completely fulfilled. And I don't have very good fonts for this. Um, I do on my other computer at home, but not on this computer. Uh, what does it mean, not one iota, one dot? Um, this is maybe just for the, the language nerds who are out there. Maybe me and Michael will appreciate this. Maybe some of you will as well. But what does that refer to? In the Hebrew language, um, I have a, a Hebrew word here. It's a name. It's Jehoahaz, um, Old Testament name. Uh, what is a yoda? What is a dot? If you look at, you know, Hebrew reads from right to left. If you look on the far right of this word, you see that small little vertical line. It's like, it often looks like an apostrophe. Um, that is the Hebrew letter yod. And it's what the Greek uh, language tra- uh, translates as iota. Uh, that's the pronunciation in Greek. But it's the, the Hebrew letter yod, and it's the smallest of the letters. It's just a little apostrophe. And a dot uh, really has, has the idea of the smallest stroke of the pen. It refers to something like a, a hook or, or a small line. There's two letters in this name, Jehoahaz. Um, the second letter and then the second to the last letter, they're very, very similar. Um, if you look at them there, the only difference between them is one of them has a connected line and the other there's a little gap, a disconnected line. That's what, what's being referred to here with dot. And so when Jesus says not one iota, not one yod, Not one dot, or as the King James says it, not one tittle, I think it says, will pass away. It's referring to the smallest letter and even the smallest stroke that distinguishes between letters. That will not pass away. I sort of have those circled here. You can see the difference. There's the yod circled in red and the dot that is, or the small little stroke of the pen that's circled in yellow. Jesus is being very particular about the scripture being permanent and eternal and not passing away. But we need to clarify something. When we look at these verses, specifically we notice that the word is preserved in heaven. That's what Psalm 119 says. Forever, O Lord, your word is established in the heavens. We do not have a direct promise that the original manuscripts themselves will be preserved. In fact, today, when you go to museums, when you talk to scholars, when we talk to those who who study ancient texts, we don't have the original document that Moses wrote. We don't have any of the original Gospels that Matthew or John Mark or Luke or John actually wrote. We don't have those first manuscripts. So we need to make sure what's not being uh, guaranteed here. And we don't even have entire copies that are guaranteed to be exactly word for word of those original documents. In addition, if we look specifically at the words of Jesus, it is the perfect fulfillment of Scripture that is being promised. We're not being promised perfect copies or perfect translations. So those other texts often get brought up, and they are true, and we must affirm them, that God does preserve his word forever. But it's important that we understand what they're not saying, because if we think they are saying that, it'll take us to some strange and confusing uh, places. Um, So we need to clarify what we're not saying. So the question then becomes, so how is God's word preserved on earth? Well, two things. God's word is preserved on earth in the Bibles that we have, the copies of the text that we have. It is preserved through the careful work of his people. Um, We see that in the Old Testament as the scribes gave themselves to carefully copying the law. And we even know from history and tradition that they were so careful, so deliberate, that if they made one error, the whole scroll had to be thrown out and start over. And every time they wrote the name of God, they'd stop and take a bath. They would do personal cleansing and purification because they knew how holy of a task it was that they are writing the very name of God. 
So careful work was given to copying and reproducing the inspired text. Uh, We even know that each king in Old Testament Israel was commanded to write his own copy of the law and that he was commanded to read it and meditate on it and know it and do it, that that copy that he produced, it was treated as scripture. It wasn't devalued because it was a copy and it wasn't devalued because a king had made the copy for himself. To the degree that that copy reflected the original, it was scripture and he was to treat it as such. I mean, we know that in the New Testament as well. There was copies and copies of copies, and God's word proliferated, and there was careful attention given to this. It has never been a haphazard or a sloppy process. And there are scholars today who have devoted their entire careers to the study and the careful copying and the collection of ancient texts to make sure that we have, to the best of our ability, the faithful representation of those first manuscripts. So God has preserved his word on earth through the careful work of his people, natural means. He's also guaranteed the preservation of his word by his providential care in directing the events of history and ensuring that his people have his word. And we even see this in scripture, also in history. Uh, Moses, as we'll see in Exodus, gets angry and smashes the tablets, doesn't he? God's word, written with his finger, is lost. But that doesn't mean that the word God intended us to have was lost because God repeats the law for Moses and has him make his own copy. We find that in Exodus 34. That is God's providential care, ensuring that his people have the word that they need to have. In the book of Jeremiah, um, we see that prophets are often not popular. And when Jeremiah's scroll is read to the king, every page that's read, he carefully cuts it up, throws it in the fire, and then he listens to some more, cuts it up, throws it in the fire, so that the first copy of the book of Jeremiah was destroyed, destroyed um, by a wicked king. But then God directed Jeremiah to make another copy. And so we got a second edition, and that second edition included a little new portion, a portion that talks about how the king tried to destroy the book of Jeremiah. So God, again, is providentially ensuring that his word is preserved, that his people have his inspired scriptures. We know in 2 Kings 22, we find that God's law was actually lost. It was lost, buried somewhere in the temple, somewhere in the file cabinet, in the back closet that never got cleaned out. And after 50 years, it was rediscovered by a man named Hilkiah. This was during Josiah's reign. And in 2 Kings 22, he comes to the king and says, we have found something. We found God's law. Josiah says, we better read it. So they get everyone together. They read the law publicly. And there's this massive revival that takes place because the word has been rediscovered. It may be lost for a time, but God preserves it and ensures providentially that it is always going to be available to his people. We know in church history, uh, there's been many times where enemies of God have attempted to eliminate his word. Uh, Satan has always been at war against God's word from the garden. The emperor Diocletian ordered the burning of many Christian books, including the New Testament in the third century. And so this was systematic organized um, uh, task to eliminate scripture and Diocletian is ruling the known world at that time and there was not scripture that existed outside the reach of the Roman Empire the Roman Empire covered the known world at the time but he was not able to eliminate the scriptures Um, others have tried and failed as well we see this um, in various communist regimes and other places where scripture is destroyed bibles are burned but God throughout history has preserved his word and we have it today 
we have it today. So God uses the careful uh, work and effort of his people. He also just providentially directs history so that his word is preserved. So we know that God's word will be eternally preserved in heaven. We know that the original autographs are inspired. Um, we don't believe that the copies have the same process of inspiration going on that the originals did. But we do believe that our copies of God's word are God's word to the degree that they reflect the original. So this might sound like a lot of history and, and parsing things out to you, but it's important that we understand where our Bible comes from. It's important that we understand the doctrine of preservation, that we are confident that what we have is God's word. For God to preserve his word forever in heaven, to go through all the effort over thousands of years of, of inspiring it and giving it to his people, and then for him to simply allow it to be lost and us not have access to what we need, uh, that wouldn't be in keeping with his character, with his promises, or with his plan. So we can believe in the doctrine of preservation. But there's a second doctrine that is closely tied to it, and that's the doctrine of canonicity, this idea of canonicity. Now, when I say the word canon, some of you kids are maybe thinking pirate ships and these big you know, iron guns and launching cannonballs. That's not what we're talking about. The word canon comes from an old word that has the idea of a reed or a rod. And they would use these rods to be a standard of measurement, sort of like a yardstick or something like that. So when we refer to canonicity, we're referring to something that meets the standard, the standard that is required for a book or a letter to belong to Scripture. So a definition of canonicity would be this, the church's recognition and acceptance of the books of Scripture as God's inspired word. There are some books that make up this one book that belong and there are other books, other ancient religious texts, that do not belong, uh, that do not belong to the Bible. And canonicity is the word we use to refer to sort of how those decisions were made and how that process came about. There are three key tests for canonicity, and this is important. And so some of you guys may have learned something about this many years ago. Maybe you read the book or, or saw the, the Hollywood adaptation of The Da Vinci Code. How many of you guys read that book or saw that movie? Very few of you. Okay, some of you did. Uh, around the time that movie came out and that book came out, lots of people were getting into these conspiracies of, oh, there's lost books of Scripture that, that, that really have the inside scoop on who Jesus was, and it would change the trajectory of Christianity and history if only we had these lost books. And there's been a conspiracy by the church to suppress these things. So some people get into that sort of thing. But there are three tests of canonicity that make clear we do have the books we need, and those other supposed books, they really don't belong, and here's why. Three tests for canonicity. The first is authorship. Authorship. When we determine whether a book belongs, whether it's uh, 1 Samuel or whether it's the Gospel of John or whether it's Philippians, the first test is authorship. Who wrote it? Who wrote it? Scripture, to, to meet the tests of canonicity, to be accepted as scripture, historically we've always asked this question of authorship. Was it written by a prophet? Was it written by an apostle or close associate of an apostle? Uh, those are key questions we ask. Um, as we read the Old Testament and New Testament, every book that belongs to the canon of scripture passes the test of authorship. Um, it, it's interesting, the one book that, that often raises questions is the book of Hebrews because we don't know exactly who the author was. But as we study the content of Hebrews, as we study the language of Hebrews and the theology of Hebrews, it becomes very clear that it was either written by one of the apostles or one of their close associates because he talks just like the rest of those guys and speaks with a measure of authority. Um, so that is one test, is authorship. 
Um, another test of canonicity would be agreement with the other scripture. So again, with Hebrews, does the theology of Hebrews agree with the theology of Romans and the Gospel of John and the Psalms and the theology of Deuteronomy and Genesis? And the answer is yes. So in order to belong to scripture, a book within the Bible has to agree with the rest of the books in the Bible. That is a key test. And this is why we reject um, the Apocrypha and some of the um, some of the, the supposed lost gospels, the gospel of Thomas and things like that, they have to agree with scripture. There can't be contradictions. And that's one of the amazing things that bears to, or gives, gives weight to the truth of scripture is that it all agrees with itself. There are no contradictions and that gives us the ability to trust in what scripture says. And then a third test of canonicity would be acceptance. Um, this is a historical test. Was this book, was this letter uh, historically accepted as scripture by the broader church? Is this something that the Holy Spirit used to bear fruit and shape the church all across the world and all throughout time? Or was this something that only caught fire in one little backwoods corner and never was widely accepted by God's people? Uh, so again, uh, to meet uh, or the, the process of canonicity involves meeting these three key tests, authorship, agreement, and acceptance by the broader church. And there's more we could say about that, but those are three key tests we need to be aware of. So the canonicity of the Old Testament, a few things we can say about this. The Old Testament was written over the span of about 1,000 years. And the acceptance of the Old Testament as we have it today, that was largely settled by the time of Christ. There was no real controversy over that. It was generally accepted as scripture by faithful Jews, uh, those 39 books that we have today were treated as scripture. And the New Testament authors affirm all those sections of our Old Testament, the law, the writings, and the prophets, referring to the books of Moses, the historical books, um, and the, the, the wisdom literature, and the prophetic literature. They are all quoted and affirmed by New Testament authors, including Jesus. Um, so we have New Testament affirmation of the Old Testament. And it's interesting that the apocryphal books... Uh, those books that are included in the Roman Catholic Bible, they're never mentioned by New Testament authors, never quoted, never affirmed, and the early church didn't recognize them, and uh, the Jewish people never recognized those as scriptural. So the Apocrypha, we don't believe, belongs to the Old Testament. Um, the New Testament is a little more of an involved process. It was written much more rapidly, over a 50-year period. We have 22 books today in the New Testament that, that have been accepted by the church, and there were sort of three stages for the, the, the sort of putting together of the New Testament. The first stage was circulation. Um, a letter was written. Perhaps it was John, John Mark writing the Gospel of Mark. He is being discipled by Peter, and he interviews Peter and writes down Peter's testimony. That's the Gospel of Mark. That Gospel was then circulated. It was passed around. Different churches got a hold of it, made their own copy, and sent it around. And you see this as you read the New Testament, that there's often these messengers going from church to church, and they're bearing letters, and they're carrying these books. And so they really went viral. Uh, the New Testament went viral in the early church. It got spread around and shared. So the first stage was circulation. And then as these letters are circulated, whether it be one of Paul's letters or one of the Gospels, um, churches began collecting these letters they had received and using them in worship. They followed the practice of the synagogue. In the synagogue, there would be the reading of Old Testament scripture, and then uh, the priest or the scribe or whoever would sort of expound upon that. So the New Testament elders and pastors started doing that with these letters, and they were collected together, 
And they started being used regularly in the New Testament church. And, and therefore, they started to become generally recognized as scripture. So recognition would be the final stage of the New Testament books coming into the canon. Um, this recognition was sort of formally recognized in the fourth century. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, Diocletian had attempted to stamp out the New Testament. But following Diocletian, there was a man named Constantine who decided that he liked Christianity and was going to make it the official religion of the Roman Empire. And he commissioned a man named Eusebius to uh, formally uh, collect and, and author and make copies of the New Testament. And so Eusebius then had to make a decision. Okay, so which books belong in the New Testament? What belongs in this edition that I've been sort of commissioned to put together? And there's a long process within that, but he really um, was moving towards the copy that we have today, this collection of the New Testament. The early church father, Athanasius, confirmed that list that Eusebius put together. And this was later ratified by the church at large at the Council of Hippo in 393 AD. So there's a lot of history there. But what you sometimes hear people say is, well, Constantine, because it was advantageous to him, just decided what was going to be in the Bible. And that's not true. Constantine didn't pick and choose. And it's not even early church fathers in the fourth century that got to pick and choose what was in the Bible. This process that sort of happened um, over the case of several decades was really just the formal recognition of what had already taken place. What had already taken place was that these books, and not others, had been circulated throughout the New Testament church. These books, and not others, had been collected and used by the church, <clears throat> by the church at large. <clears throat> and therefore, it's these books, and not others, that ought to be recognized as canonical, as scripture, as belonging to the Bible. So we would reject that criticism that's often thrown out, that, well, people just decided, you know, kind of arbitrarily which books they thought should be in the Bible. Uh, that's not what happened. They just recognized what was already a practical reality. Um, this process of canonicity, it's important we understand, no one decides what is scripture. Not at the Council of Hippo, not in the New Testament church uh, in, the, in the first century, and not today. No one gets to decide what is scripture. We simply recognize what God has done, and we receive it. And that process of recognizing it means we have to do some legwork but we're simply recognizing what God has done and receiving it as his word, which it is. So that brings up a key question. Is the canon of scripture closed? Are there more books that maybe have been lost that we need to add to the Bible? Or is God going to inspire someone tomorrow to write another book that needs to be added to the Bible? And we answer that question, yet the canon is closed. There will not be more revelation added to our Bible. The process is done. And we can see this because as we look at even the way the, the Bible has been given to us, the way it's constructed, Genesis and Revelation form these perfect bookends. It starts with in the beginning, and it ends with this vision of the new heavens and the new earth where all things are made right and all things are made new. That's the two bookends of eternity. Eternity past with God creating everything, and then eternity future with God having made all things right. And, and our, our Bible reflects that. Within the Bible, we find warnings not to add to Scripture. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 12, Proverbs 30, Revelation 22. And because Revelation was chronologically the last book written, and because thematically it really concludes human history, the warning that we find at the end of Revelation 22 
really does indicate that it's not just revelation that shouldn't be added to, it's the whole Bible. Revelation 22 verse 18 says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's the third to last uh, verse in the Bible. And we should take it seriously. So Revelation, the book, and God's process of revelation, giving a scripture, that is complete. And there's nothing that needs to be added to it. An additional reason we believe that, that the canon is closed is that remember that test of authorship to have a prophet or an apostle or a close associate? Uh, we don't have prophets or apostles today the way that they did during the time when the scripture was being written. So we shouldn't expect that there's anyone today who has the authority as an author to write God's word. God has done uh, doing that. He's already given us everything we need for life and godliness. So if there's, again, some people say, well, what about, what happens if we discover a lost letter? You know, there's probably four letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. So we have first and second Corinthians, but there's, there are actually probably second and fourth Corinthians. There are some other letters that were written in there that we don't have today. What happens if we find one of those lost letters? Well, remember, even a letter found by one of the gospel authors it would fail to meet the test of widespread usage and acceptance by the early church. So it, it, it's not scripture. God has not chosen to preserve those letters for us. He's preserved these letters. There's a reason we have them. So we believe the canon is closed and there will not be anything added to the scriptures. So that brings us to this final issue of the transmission of the text. or and That includes the idea of translation as well. So a little bit about the text itself. The Old Testament is written predominantly in Hebrew. Um, there is some Aramaic, but it's predominantly Hebrew. And there has been careful preservation of the Hebrew text throughout the centuries. And there is stunning consistency. Um, we can trust that the Hebrew text as we have it today is highly, highly accurate. Um, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, it gave us sort of a, a test case Here's some very, very old Hebrew scrolls that we compared to newer Hebrew copies that we have. And the amazing thing is they matched up. It shows us that there hasn't been this change over time. Oftentimes people will say, you can't trust the text we have today because it's like the telephone game. My kids like to play the telephone game where one of them will whisper a random you know, statement in their ear and then they say it to the next kid, they say it to the next kid and you go around the room and then somebody says out loud and you see how it's changed because somebody misheard something or maybe one of them has a good sense of humor and likes to change something on purpose, you know. People will say that the Bible's like that, that it's this big giant game of telephone and we can't trust the Bible because it's just copies of copies of copies of copies and the message has been changed over time. That's not true. As we look at ancient, ancient texts and compare them to our more modern texts, there is amazing consistency and accuracy. Um, so textual criticism is the process of studying those texts and comparing any changes, studying them to figure out what's, what was the original, what was the original um, writing that the original manuscript contained. And textual criticism when it comes to Hebrew, basically there's not a lot of textual criticism you can do because it's so accurate. There's not a lot of differences to study. Any differences there are are typically um, spelling changes or, or arguing over whether the vowel pointings are correct. Um, when Hebrew was originally written, 
There were no vowels, it was just consonants. Later, the Masoretes, which was a group of scribes, they added these vowel pointings to sort of clarify um, the difference between words, because some words may have the same consonants. So again, I'm losing some of you because this is a little bit of the, the history and the language aspect, but the Masoretes added these vowel pointings later. And when people do textual criticism, sometimes they'll debate, well, I think that, it, that the Masoretes, who weren't inspired, I think they added the wrong vowel. I think it should be this vowel, which then would change the word, which then would change you know, the, the sense of this verse. That's basically, though, all the discussion there is when it comes to studying um, the accuracy of the Hebrew text. It is so highly consistent and accurate, there's really not a lot of debate there. So we have a highly faithful, consistent, ancient Hebrew text. The New Testament text was written in Greek, Koine Greek. This was the common language of the day. And again, God's timing is perfect. The Roman Empire was empowered during uh, the entire time that the New Testament was being written. But the Roman Empire really was built on Greek culture. The Greek Empire had preceded it, and they had spread their language and their culture throughout the known world. That meant that the entire known world at the time was speaking and using Koine Greek, which again means that the first copies of Scripture could go viral because everybody could read it in their own language. So it's really amazing how God ordains history and even uses the authoring of his word in a specific language at a specific time where it could catch fire and spread. Um, so the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, and it's not a mysterious language. It's not a sacred um, type language. It was the common language of the day. Um, and that's what the New Testament authors wrote in. Um, the copying of the New Testament books has led to thousands of manuscripts. Today, we have over 5,000 um, fragments or, or even copies of Greek manuscripts. And it ranges from uh, copies that are nearly an entire book of the Bible to sometimes what might amount to a napkin, you know, a, a scrap of paper with a verse written on it. And what happens is scholars today can take all those thousands of manuscripts and compare them to study the consistencies and to study the places where they might be different. And they can go through the helpful process of asking, okay, why are these different? And which one is the original and which one is the mistake? Because maybe somebody made a spelling error. Maybe somebody made a, a, a note in the margin that later, through the process of copying, copying things, maybe that note in the margin got kind of slid into the text itself. Um, so so they'll, they'll look through and see, you know, what was the original? And as we study this multitude of manuscripts, it actually, that process is good. It allows us to trace all the way back and have a very confident sense of what the originals said. Scholars agree um, that over 99% of the original writing of Scripture, what the biblical authors put to paper, has been reclaimed with confidence, with certainty, over 99%. The things we have questions about, the things where we're not sure if this was original or not, that is a very, very, very small, small percentage. So we have a high degree of confidence, not only in the Old Testament text, but also the New Testament text. And again, the people that say, well, it's copies of copies of copies, and we can't know what the original said, that's simply not true. And that's either a statement of, of willful deceit, because they know the truth and they're trying to hide it, or it's a statement of ignorance, that they don't understand how the process works, how we've been able to study and, and affirm that the copy of the text we have today is ancient and it is accurate, it is trustworthy. Um, even in the places where there are differences, um, there are some differences in Greek texts, but those changes, those differences between texts, they don't affect any key doctrines. 
So even if we get it wrong, even if we say, well, we think this variant is the original and this variant is the change, even if we get that backwards, it's not going to really change anything. It's not going to affect what we believe. So the existence of textual variants, it doesn't undermine our doctrine, and it doesn't undermine the idea of inerrancy, that God has revealed truth to us in his word, that every word is true. Um, it does not undermine that doctrine. In fact, the massive amount of manuscripts and even some of the differences between them, it makes it easier, not harder, to determine the original meaning because we have so much to compare it to. Um, so again, don't listen to the copies of copies of copies argument that tries to undermine um, that the transmission of the text we have is faithful and true. So another question that comes up when it, when it, in, in this realm is, so why do we have so many translations? Why do we have the NIV and the KJV and the New American Standard and all these different translations? Well, there's a couple reasons for that, and I want to share this with you so that you will have a greater trust in the English Bible you hold on your lap. Um, one reason why some of the translations are different is because some of them make use of different text families. Remember I said there's thousands of manuscripts, and sometimes there's what you might call families of manuscripts. There's a whole group of manuscripts that you can tell is sourced from a certain region where they had one copy, and there's another group of manuscripts that uses as its source another copy that was from a different region, and you can see how that sort of spread out over time. Um, both of those textual families, again, are highly in agreement, but there are some differences. And so, for instance, the King James Version and the New King James Version and, and a few others that are less common, they use one set of text families, one collection of manuscripts to do their translation into English. And then there's um, other translations like the English Standard Version and the New International Version, the New American Standard. They use a different collection of manuscripts. So that's one of the reasons we have different translations is some committee groups that do the work of translating, they've chosen to use a different collection of manuscripts. That's one reason. Uh, another reason is that as new manuscripts are found, language evolves, and our versions are sometimes updated to reflect that. Uh, that's one reason we have different translations. Um, the, new, or the, the King James Version, um, which has its roots, you know, it's centuries old. It didn't make use of some of the manuscripts that we've discovered since then. So that's one of the reasons that we've made new translations and updated things is because we found more information. Uh, and, and it gives us a better idea of what the original said, even over the last several hundred years. Um, another reason we have different translations is because there's different translation philosophies. There's different approaches. Um, the authors of the New American Standard Bible were trying to do something different than the authors of the, or the translation committee for the New International Version. They have different philosophies in what they're trying to do with Scripture. This means that they're not necessarily disagreeing. The NIV does not disagree with the New American Standard. They're simply approaching the text with different goals and different methods, and I'd like to sort of lay that out. Two terms you can be aware of, dynamic equivalency and formal equivalency. Those are two different terms. Dynamic, uh, meaning that it's more active and elastic, versus formal, which is more strict. A dynamic and formal equivalency. Dynamic equivalency means this, that the translators are sitting down to translate the idea of what the scripture is saying. So they're translating thought for thought. They'll take a whole sentence and say, what is this sentence saying? Literally, in Greek. So they're still trying to be literal. But what is this whole sentence saying? And then they'll take that thought and try to translate that thought into English. 
So that's more of a dynamic, fluid approach, and it makes for a simpler to understand and easier to read translation of the Bible. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum would be formal equivalency. And instead of trying to translate thought for thought, instead of trying to translate the ideas, formal equivalency aims to translate word for word, to try to be literal again, but more literal with the words instead of literal with the ideas. And this makes for a more highly literal and and transparent translation in that we can see more clearly exactly what the original author was saying, but sometimes it's harder to understand because the ideas are not as clear because of idioms or difficult language or things like that. So there's a spectrum here between dynamic equivalency and formal equivalency, thought for thought versus word for word. And here's a little graph I put together. On the thought for thought end of the spectrum would be the New Living Translation. That would be very fluid, very... um, very dynamic. Uh, it's not quite a paraphrase. It's still a translation, but they are not worried so much about capturing each word of the Greek text or the Hebrew text. They're more worried about capturing the idea and the flow of thought, and their translation philosophy reflects that. So again, different goals, different methodologies. The NIV would be more literal than the NLT, but still more in that dynamic equivalency range. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, would be sort of one notch over, Then you get into the more formal equivalent range of the spectrum. The King James and New King James, even more literal than that would be the ESV. And then probably the most literal, most direct uh, of the popular translations would be the New American Standard Bible, or the NASB, as some of us call it. So that's just maybe a helpful graph for you to understand. Why do we have all these different translations? Well, these different committees who have translated the texts, some of them are working with different manuscripts, And some of them have different goals and therefore different methodologies. But when you go to make a choice as to which one you're going to use, you can see that there's actually value in all of those translations. Whether you're using the NIV or the ESV or one of those others, there's actually value in using um, all of those translations. People say, well, which Bible version, which translation should I use? I encourage people to use them all. Use different translations. Then you can compare them. Um, And and sometimes when you've read a text maybe 50 times and it's so familiar in one version, to read it from a different translation helps you see it in a fresh way. So I I encourage people to use a a variety of Bible translations or Bible versions. But I would encourage you to use the more literal ones for study. When you're studying doctrine, when you're doing careful study to try to determine precise truth, we need to know the words. The words matter. So read large chunks in the NIV, read large chunks in the NLT, but study carefully in the English Standard Version. Study carefully um, in the New American Standard Bible and memorize those um, because those words are more transparent to what the original Greek and Hebrew texts are saying. Um, Translations are valid, and I want to affirm again that, that a translation is God's word to the degree it reflects what the original said. And it's interesting, even the New Testament authors sometimes used a translation. They would sometimes quote a Greek translation of the Old Testament and use it as scripture. So what this means is that you don't have to know Hebrew to know the Old Testament. You can study a good translation and you can know God's word. 
It is powerful. It is true. You don't have to go to seminary and become a linguist in order to actually read God's word. These English translations are valid, and they are true, and they're trustworthy. And we even see a good example in the New Testament of authors who used a translation of the Bible. Um, And again, the best translation, if you're going to ask me that question, I'll probably tell you the best translation is the one that you're going to read all the time. Um, Get one of those that I listed that's, that's trustworthy and commit to read it and to be in it. And if someone reads through the NIV three times a year for a decade, they're going to be far better off than the person who knows Hebrew and Greek but doesn't read it. Um, read the Bible that you have. Um, I would say stay away from the paraphrases, things like the message or other things like that. But any of those translations, they're good. So read them and make use of them. So that was a lot of information, and I know a lot of it was more technical, and that's why I got to do this one instead of maybe Stephen or Carrie or Scott got to talk about all the language stuff, which I enjoy. Um, But come talk to me if you have additional questions or write your questions down. Next week we'll do a bit of um, uh, discussion on some of the questions from the last few weeks. So you are dismissed.